right, if you can turn to Jonah chapter 3. Apparently my uh, battery issues were not limited to Friday when the van battery decided to give up its ghost when I was going to run an errand. Uh, it's my guitar and also apparently my computer. I think that's what loss of connection means with my mouse, right? Am I okay on that? Yeah, okay. So charging that thing up. All right. Sometimes these things just happen, streaks of things like batteries. So, All right, Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord, Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let's pray. Creator, Speak to us, for we are made in your image. Redeemer, speak to us whom you bought with your blood. Father, speak to your children whom you adopted in Christ. Lord, speak to us who claim you as king and bow before your authority. Jesus, speak to your bride, expressing your love and bathe her in your word. Spirit, illumine the scripture for all who are united to Christ. Amen. It was uh, 1536, three years after uh, John Calvin had been forced to flee Paris because of persecution that had broken out there against the Protestants. There was a bit of an amnesty, so to speak, and so Calvin took the opportunity to return to Paris to close up shop and to retrieve his brother and sister. On his way out of Paris, he had decided that he was going to go to Strasbourg. He had spent the previous three years in Basel, but he wanted to go to Strasbourg and he wanted to write. That's how he envisioned the rest of his life, uh, writing theology just as he had already written the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, That's the life he envisioned for himself. But in the providence of God, there was troop movement. And that troop movement meant that he couldn't go directly to Strasbourg. What he ended up doing, on the other hand, was spending time in Geneva. One night in Geneva. That was the plan. Now, uh, there's some discussion and debate as to in terms of who sought out whom first, but nonetheless, whichever way you look at it, John Calvin and William Farrell were in the same place at the same time talking to one another. Farrell was a also, was also a Frenchman who had left France and was pursuing to trying to spread the Reformation in the city of Geneva. And he was inviting Calvin to join him in this work. And Calvin, wanting simply to write, would have nothing to do with it. And he was resisting the pleas of William Farrell. 
It was then that Pharaoh, in frustration and possibly by the Holy Spirit, we don't know, said to him, essentially, May God curse you and your endeavors if you go to Strasbourg. Calvin sensed the severity of what he said, the seriousness and gravity of the matter, and decided to spend the rest of his life, or at least the next portion of his life, in Geneva. Over the course of time, Calvin found himself called to a place that he didn't always want and called to a people that didn't always want him. And so in some ways, he was a little bit like Jonah, a man who was sent by the providence of God to a place he didn't want to go and to people who really didn't want him to be there. So... Our big idea this morning is that Jesus sends his people to places and people in great need. Let's start with the reality that our faithful God is a persistent God. Sometimes that is a welcome message. Sometimes that is not a welcome message. But our our faithful God, because he's faithful, is persistent. We left off Jonah, who had been unceremoniously vomited upon the land by the great fish that had swallowed him at the command of God. He had been restored to land as opposed to being out at sea. And there's the imagery that goes on there between chaos and death and now life upon the land. He's been restored to life. He's been restored to communion with God, as we see in his prayer in chapter 2. He's been restored to commitment to Yahweh because he ends on this idea of he will raise a voice of thanksgiving and will sacrifice to Yahweh and what he has vowed he will pay. And so there's a commitment that that Jonah expresses and a sense of I'm yours, Lord. Here I am. Take me. Now, we don't know how much time passed between chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 3, verse 1. It could have been almost instantaneous as, uh, Mo, as Jonah is there still covered in stuff from the belly of the fish and uh, God speaks to him. Or it could have been that Jonah went home and there God spoke to him again. We don't know. But speak, God did. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God is relentless. It can feel, if you're Jonah, like he's the parent. Have you cleaned your room yet? Have you done your schoolwork yet? And so God comes to Jonah. If God is this persistent, your parents are not wrong to be persistent, children. They're merely acting like him. But I'm sure Jonah didn't want to hear it just as much as our children don't like to hear it. So we see that the faithful God, because he is faithful, continues to pursue Jonah. He has shown Jonah mercy and grace and now wants Jonah to respond in that commitment to him, that devotion to him, that being set apart to him and to God's mission. There's another person. 
Another time we see the name of Jonah that is not referring necessarily to Jonah. That is tied to the text that we read in Luke 9. But it's Matthew's version of it in Matthew 16. It's right there in the midst of Peter's great confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which is son of Jonah, Aramaic for son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, understood, has revealed this to you. Now, there's a head-scratcher here. Because if we go to John's Gospel, we see in two places uh, that Peter is named to be the son of John. Now, some have theorized that Jonah is a form of John, but perhaps what is really going on here is that Jesus is giving a figurative naming or symbolic naming, that he is a shares the characteristics of Jonah. That he's not literally descended from a man named Jonah, but that he is just like Jonah the prophet. And if we stop and think, we see that in many ways, Peter was like Jonah. Because we see, as I said, this was spoken at Peter's confession, and then in John and Matthew's gospel, Jesus goes and begins to talk about the fact that he's going to be put to death pretty soon. And so the, 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 the shadow of the cross begins to show up, and who's the one who speaks against this? Peter. Surely... You shall not. He begins to rebuke Jesus for speaking this way. And so uh, Peter is resisting the Father's call upon the Son's life. And it's not too much longer when Peter finds himself in a courtyard and Jesus is being tried unjustly, unfairly, and Peter is asked three times, once by the lowly servant girl, Aren't you with him? And Peter says three times, Nope, don't know him. Denying God's call upon his own life, denying his connection and relationship with Jesus, who was, in fact, the Messiah. And so we have Peter from these great heights of being the one who makes the confession at Caesarea Philippi to now Peter being the one who is denying Jesus by the fireside in the high priest's courtyard. But thankfully the story does not end there because like Jonah, Peter is restored not just to God, but he's also restored to his mission. The one who was not really like a rock is still entrusted with the purpose of building up Christ's church. And this points us all, or should point us all, to the fact that God does not give up on us. Sometimes we bail. Sometimes we run away from what we believe God is calling us to do. I've bailed. I was on the brink of coming to Arizona 20-something years ago, freaked out. Sandstorms, scorpions, rattlesnakes, I don't want any of that. I ran away. We've run away in various ways. 
But here's the, here's the good news. Just because you run away doesn't mean God's given up on you. He's persistent and He keeps showing up and He keeps calling you back. Not just to Himself, but oftentimes to the mission He has laid before you. First comes the relationship and secondly comes that characteristic of mission. I'm sure Calvin thought that God gave up on him because in uh, 1538, after a few years in Geneva, he got kicked out of Geneva. He got his wish. He went to Strasbourg. He started to write, except now he was starting to do some pastoral ministry stuff with with, uh, Martin Bucer on the side. But would he be used again? I wonder if he thought that. And there it was three years later. 1541, come back to Geneva, please. Back to the place he didn't want to go in the first place. (laughs) Back to the people he didn't really like and who really didn't like him because, again, they kicked him out. But feeling the call of God, he returned. The cross that Peter so much resisted is the basis of God's mercy to Peter as well as the basis of God's mercy to you when you run from Him and from His call. So I wonder this morning as we gather here, where do you need God's merciful faithfulness and persistence? Because most of you probably do. Because most of you, if you're like me, have some besetting sins. Things that you struggle with and places you run where you shouldn't run. There are also ways in which you perhaps resist God's calling on your life. You're you're not engaging in the mission that He's called you to and, and... You need His persistent faithfulness and mercy. His persistence to come in and bring you back. And so His steadfast love and faithfulness are are revealed in how He persistently pursues us. Just as He persistently pursued Jonah. Secondly, our faithful God is a mission-minded God. Uh, In this particular case, God is persistent about a particular thing. He's faithful about one thing. Arise, go to Nineveh. This is probably not what Jonah wanted to hear. God is persistent about this command and everything that is uh, said here in when God speaks to Jonah is nearly identical. Remember, nearly. There are going to be a couple of deviations from what we saw in chapter 1. And those deviations are going to become very important. But it's almost identical. God's goal has not changed for the life of Jonah. He wants Jonah to go to Nineveh, far away, 600 miles away. But farther than that, 
spiritually. You see, Nineveh was a great city, not just in its earthly significance, but apparently it's also a great city in God's eyes. He, he valued them greatly despite the fact that they were Gentiles. Because he keeps wanting one of his prophets to go to Nineveh. Again, as we said before, Jonah represents in his historical experiences Israel and their historical experiences. Because just like Jonah, Israel didn't want to go to the nations. As we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as uh, the Lord my God commanded me, says Moses, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples or nations who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They were to be a light to the nations. That doesn't just appear when Jesus shows up and begins to teach uh, the Sermon on the Mount. That is an Old Testament biblical concept. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be making Yahweh's name known to the nations. And so Jonah's calling is a reflection of that. That this is one of those times when the, the, the promise given to Abraham, Abraham that you will be a blessing to the nations is meant to take place. God is sending Jonah to the, that nation, Assyria, in order to be a blessing to that nation, Assyria. But Jonah, as we have seen through this book, was reluctant. He was a reluctant prophet to the Gentiles. And this is another way in which Peter is just like him. Because in Acts, what we see is, while Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, the first apostle called to preach to the Gentiles was actually Peter. And as he's there, in Joppa, of all places, Three times the vision has to come to him that he is intended to preach to the Gentiles. Why? Because he doesn't want to go. He's a typical Jew who saw the Gentiles as unclean, who would share their uncleanliness with him, and God has to repeatedly tell him, what I have made clean stays clean. Get over there. Talk to Cornelius and his family. But it wasn't just Peter who was reluctant. We see in Acts chapter 1 that they were promised that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them at the Feast of Pentecost and they are meant to be His witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're meant to bring the Gospel to the Gentiles. And it's not until Acts chapter 8 when the persecution breaks out with regard to Stephen in his ministry, that then a, arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, 
and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. The apostles hunkered down in Jerusalem. The Christians hunkered down in Jerusalem and it took a persecution to get them to fulfill their com- the command to go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're reluctant like Calvin. They're reluctant like us. God sent Jonah to a dangerous place of dangerous people to declare what would end up being a dangerous message. Jonah was sent to people who did not share his values who did not share his morals, who did not share his culture, who did not share his customs, who lived in spiritual darkness. They were not fish slappers like in the Veggie Tales version of this story. They were far worse, far more dangerous. God knows something of this. For he did not just send Jonah, he sent his son Jesus. And as it says in the beginning of John's Gospel, that he came to his own people and his people received him not. And it's not until you get later in the Gospel of John when you see exactly what that means. They put him on a cross. Jesus knows what it means to go to a dangerous people in a dangerous place. In a place filled with spiritual darkness rejected by his people, but yet killed to save his sheep. And so we see that God, again, as I will bring up who knows how many times in the rest of this sermon series, he wants to bring some of Abraham's blessing to these particular Gentiles. I've quoted from Galatians 3, and I want to quote from a different spot in Galatians 3 today. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Did you catch Paul's connection there? He's connecting that message, In you shall all the nations be blessed, to the gospel. The message of salvation. It's not just that they're going to have nice things happen to them, but that they, these Gentiles, can come into a saving relationship with the God of Israel. This was a manifestation of that as God sends Jonah to Nineveh, but it continues. We are sent to a dangerous place who are people who don't necessarily appreciate us. I've mentioned before the the poverty of uh, Tucson and the poverty of uh, Pima County. Uh, I've mentioned that uh, Tucson ranks as the um, worst city to live in 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 Arizona. On the flip side of that is I just heard that Oro Valley was rated the best small city to live in. But you know what? Whether we think of ourselves in terms of Tucson or Oro Valley, they still need Jesus. 
whether they're dealing with the problem of poverty or prosperity, they still need Jesus. And he says, go. So we see that God is mission-minded. He says, call out against it the message that I tell you. And now we have one of those things that's a little different. And uh, earlier I've, I've kind of mentioned how I get frustrated when the continuity is not displayed in the translation of the text. Well, now I have the opposite problem. The discontinuity is not displayed in the, the translation of the text. Because the preposition changes from chapter 1 to here in chapter 2. And the one in chapter 1 has that idea of against. He was supposed to preach against that city, but now he's intended to cry out to that city, which softens it a little bit, creates a little bit of ambiguity as to what God really hopes to accomplish when Jonah goes to Nineveh. It's foreshadowing the shift to mercy that will be displayed. God is again revealing Himself to be one who is merciful, gracious, and abounding in steadfast love, just as He revealed Himself to Moses on that mountain when He received for the second time the the tablets with the commands. And so this is a foundation, this this faithfulness, this steadfast love is the foundation of the the call to missions. It's an expression of of God's faithfulness, this call to mission. A, A mission that we see given to the church in Matthew 28. And so God is still engaged in this ongoing mission to save sinners. The reason that Jesus came, as we see in 1 Timothy 1. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I have the worst. And the Jesus who came continues to send His people to make the message of the Gospel clear to sinners that they might be saved. And so, still the same, God is still mission-minded and He's still sending us to places like Nineveh, meaning Tucson. Thirdly, our faithful God makes us mission-minded people. We're not naturally mission-minded people. It's something that has to shift in us. It's something that has to change in us. But the the good news is is that while in a sense I'm saying that you need to change, um, I'm saying that God is the one who has to change you. Okay? So hopefully you won't feel... um, guilted and manipulated or something. What I'm really trying to get at is you crying out to God to change you. Instead of going to Joppa, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. This time he obeyed. This time he said, I'm yours. I don't necessarily want to go to Nineveh, but I'm going to go to Nineveh. His experience of mercy from God produced in Jonah a willingness to obey God. And sometimes our willingness to obey is not there because we're lacking an awareness of God's mercy to us. Now, I said awareness of. 
Doesn't mean he hasn't been merciful, but sometimes we, we, we block it out. We're like little kids who can't realize how generous their parents are because all they focus on is the, the one gift they didn't get for their birthday or whatever. They don't see the, the long pattern of sacrifice and, and provision that the parents have made. But we're just like that with God. And sometimes we're not aware of the greatness of His mercy. And that's when our passion for mission begins to, fl- to fail. When we're not aware of how merciful He has been to us. So Jonah doesn't travel across the street. As I mentioned, he traveled 600 miles. Now remember, he can't catch a plane. He can't go on a plane. He can't jump in his car, do a one, you know, a really lengthy 10 hour drive to Nineveh. He's got to walk it or ride a camel or we don't know how he got there. The how is not all that important. What's important is God said go, Jonah went. But it was at a cost to Jonah. That's the interesting thing I was pondering this week. We don't know much about Jonah. But Jonah had to have been a a well-off man because Jonah was able to pay for passage to Tarshish. Presumably he left everything he had and and wherever he was living in Israel, decided to go to Tarshish, uh, and apparently would have had enough money to at least get started uh, in Tarshish. Presumably, he didn't lose his money purse when he was in the belly of the fish. So he had some money when he got out of the fish after he got spit up. And he has enough to get, apparently, 600 miles to Nineveh. But I can imagine he was not happy about spending all that money that he, well, this is the money that he wasted on, on going to Tarshish, and now there's the money he's got to drop to get to Nineveh, the place he doesn't really want to go. There's a lot of sacrifice involved. We don't know what his family life was like. We don't know who he left behind in Israel. There's all sorts of questions that are unanswered, but all beg the idea of this was not something quickly, joyfully chosen. But the same God who made Jonah mission-minded can and will, I believe, make you and us mission-minded. One of the reasons why I chose for us to read, or Mark to read from Luke 9 was also the fact that Jesus goes to the cost of mission. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whomever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and loses or forfeits himself or his soul. Sometimes we want to cling to the stuff that doesn't matter. And that's the stuff that gets in the way of going to mission. Being being engaged in what God is doing where we are is a costly endeavor. It, It will require 
sacrifice, which is the very last thing we really like doing. (laughs) Because we want it to be about our comfort, our ease, our kingdom, our whatever. Not about His. But living for your kingdom will only bring you death. Living for His kingdom will only bring you life. First, there might be some unpleasantness because you might go to Nineveh. Getting to Nineveh was only part of the problem. When he gets to Nineveh, we see that this is a great city, a three days journey. It's a large city, and uh, the city itself was not huge, but it's like Tucson. There's areas around it that are called Tucson. I technically live in Marana, but, you know, actually, I, I don't. I'm in the Marana School District, but my mail says Tucson. It's like that. Okay. That's why I say, when people ask usually, I'm, I'm from Boston. I'm not from Boston. But that's the only place around that they would know. So, Nineveh was kind of the, the area around Nineveh and the people who were connected to Nineveh was a fairly large thing. It says uh, requiring a three days journey in terms of its breadth. But there was also the idea of protocol. It was the day that you traveled into the city, there's a day in which you, uh, you shook all the right hands, the local officials, to make sure that you're welcome in that city. And then there's the day in which you did your business. Okay, and then traveled out of the city. And so sometimes three days may refer to the protocol. Sometimes it could go back to that three days in the belly of the whale thing. Three days for them to go from death to life through the preaching of the gospel. Not sure. But he entered the city. He didn't stay on the fringes of the city. He traveled in for a day. And in a sense, we see that he is engaging people in their world. As uh, Eugene Peterson notes, he he smelled the smells of their city, the food that's cooking, uh, the work that they do. He sees people engaged in life, and that's where he meets them. He's not on the outside shouting in, Hey, you! Yeah, you you repent, you! But he's sitting next to people, so to speak. It's amongst them. For some reason, I think of having meals with people. That's how we do it. There's a sense in which we leave our safe place, and perhaps uh, those of you who work somewhere, you start to have lunch with your co-workers. Because I don't want you doing evangelism when you're supposed to be working. I don't want you to get fired. But build relationships. And as you talk about current events, there are times to bring the gospel to bear on these things. Enter the world. For those of you who work out someplace, enter the world of your coworkers. Enter the world of your neighbor. Everyone's got neighbors. That's part of how we bring the message to bear to Tucson. Entering into their parts of the world. 
Now here comes the not-so-fun part. Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That same word that we find in the message in Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that was overthrown. But we see something here. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah, it was like that day. Didn't matter. This time, there's 40 days. They've got 40 days to respond. Okay? It's not like the, the, the crazy people you sometimes see um, in movies and things like that. You know, the, the, the guy who looks like he just came out of the, the desert 2,000 years ago with the sign, the end is near. Okay? 40 days. It's got a time frame. Something has to be done now. Can't put it off hoping that it never happens. But there's a little ambiguity here. Because that fun little word that is translated overthrown can also be translated reformed or renewed. That in 40 days, something's going to happen. If there is no repentance, it's going to be overthrown. It will be turned upside down and destroyed. But if there is repentance, there is renewal, reformation, change. And that's the way it is with gospel preaching. You see, where there is no positive response Judgment will come. But where there is positive response, renewal, redemption takes place. So the current troubles that they were experiencing in Nineveh, uh, I mentioned the famine, the insurrections that were taking place, that dangerous neighbor to the north, not named Korea, were all indications that judgment had already in fact begun and that there was an end point to it all. That it was under the sovereignty of God. It was not just coincidental, but had meaning. And we need to point out that our current troubles are also indications that there is trouble here in... I can't remember the the name of the city. What's the city in... Music Man. Riverside. River City. Sorry. I don't know why I decided to go to River City. My weakness. Um, there's trouble here in Tucson. There's trouble here in America. There is. There are cultures that have thrown off the yoke of Yahweh and are living in rebellion. And sometimes these things that happen are indications of that. Warnings. And we need to, we need to offer people the hope that is found in Christ in the midst of those things. And so there's a sense in which uh, this congregation struggles, I believe, with being a reformed stronghold. We were the first PCA church in town, by golly. That's a good thing. We're strong in our theology. That's a good thing. But sometimes we have the fortress mentality where we're so afraid of what's out there that we have to protect it and we have to kind of close the gates lest uh, someone come in and corrupt something over here and we're afraid of exporting the gospel. And while we must preserve that which has been entrusted to us, we also have to give it away. 
We need to be exporters of the gospel in a winsome sort of way. I'm curious. Aside from the children in the room, how many of you are actually born here? Three. All from the same family. (laughs) This is what I want you to start thinking about. You have been sent here. Okay? Why are you here? Now, don't think about the how you're here. Well, you know, I got married to this guy who lived there, and so I moved from India. And, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, one of the things I asked when Amy and I were candidating and um, I would meet with smaller groups of people, I asked the question, how did you end up in Tucson? And some of you, you, you came for the U of A, and you stayed. And some of you have come for work, and you're here. I'm not asking that question. I'm saying, Why are you here? Because God sent you here for the purposes of the gospel. Because He is a missionary God who has a missionary people. And so wherever you find yourself, you're there for the purposes of the gospel. You're in the neighborhood that you're in for the purposes of the gospel. You're in the workplace you're in, unless it's in your own house. Uh, well, even then, yes. Moms who stay at home, you're there for the gospel. Matt, who stays at home, and some of you others who work at home, you're there for the gospel. I want you to get that sense. That you're in the school that you're in for the purposes of the gospel. That you don't have to go to Nineveh. You're already there. So start talking about the gospel. God does not discard us upon our failure. He is faithful. He is faithful to us. And He's faithful to His plans and His purposes or His mission. And so we see people like Jonah, Peter, and John Calvin who are restored to God's purposes of the gospel. Our faithful God not only restores us to relationship with Himself, but He also restores us to a commitment to Him and to His mission so that we can say, I'm yours, Lord. Where do you want me to go? Oh, I'm already there. Okay. As God sent Jonah to Nineveh, For the reformation of that city, we have been sent here for the reformation of this city. And you're going to hear a lot of that (laughs) for the next couple of years. I'm warning you. Because he's persistent, I feel I have to be persistent. I don't want to be. But it's that important to Him. 
And I think I've got to be. Because we're supposed to be persistent in this. Are you His? Let's live like we are. Who knows what joy will befall us in the midst of faithfulness? Let's pray. Great Almighty God, grant that as there is so much timidity in us, such that none of us is prepared to follow where You may call us, that none of us is prepared to follow when You call us, that we may be so instructed by the example of Jonah as to obey You in everything, And that though Satan and the world may oppose us with all their terrors, we may yet be strengthened by reliance on your power and protection, which you have promised to us. And that we may go in the course of our vocation and never turn aside, but thus contend against all the hindrances of this world until we reach that celestial kingdom where we shall enjoy you and Christ, your only begotten Son, who is our strength, who is our salvation. And may your Spirit quicken us and strengthen all our faculties that we may obey you and that all length your name may be glorified in us. That we may finally become partakers of that glory to which you invite us through Christ our Lord. Amen.